Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast, back after a brief hiatus. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm here with my fellow co-host and new walk-in closet haver, Joseph Cacharo. <laughs> What's going on, Cash? What's going on, Wolf? Yeah, not uh, not fully moved in yet, but um, yep, the, the place is just about ready. The closet is just about ready. Um, did I shout out last week? Uh Johnny Z34 on SoundCloud, who, who I, I think we had shouted out previously, but did I shout out last week that he left the comment on SoundCloud congratulating you on uh, expecting a child and following it up with, and sick closet, Cash. I, I, don't, I, don't I don't know, know if we shouted him out, but we'll shout him out now for that comment. But yeah, it's uh, that us talking about our personal lives a couple of weeks ago went, went over better than I thought it would. And some of the reactions to it were pretty hilarious, but none more hilarious than that. Like a very heartfelt congratulations on you bringing another human into this world soon. And then uh, just you bringing another closet that, into this world. And sick closet catch. It reminded me of, uh, people remember the old uh, Welcome to Heartbreak track from Kanye off 808s and Heartbreak when he's talking about like, people around him like getting married having kids and he's just got like a new crib and new whips and uh, obviously i'm not at that level nor do i feel heartbroken so no don't be sad for me pound the rock listeners but it did remind me of that when i read that comment and i was laughing but anyway yeah long story short i'm doing well man <laughs> everything's good yeah uh, we did have a bit of a hiatus there i was off last week you were busy doing a bunch of work on the content side but i will say very much appreciate the number of people that tweeted at us or reached out to me on social media to ask where the pod was. Uh, we wish we could have gotten you one last week, but we definitely appreciate the love and uh, and the fact that people do miss us when we're not around. How'd everything go with the move? All, all smooth. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not fully in there yet. Uh, did some painting on Sunday, letting that dry a bit and still have a, a few things to move over there. But for the most part, yeah, it's ready to rock. So a week off well spent. That's good to know, man. It's... Um... It's kind of tough times over here in Toronto, and yeah. I wanted to kick this off by just pointing something out because uh, I I get this like New York Times coronavirus daily briefing basically sent to my email inbox, and I usually just sort of skim it, kind of looking for like relevant information um, about you know, like how the vaccine distribution is going worldwide and like what scientists are saying about transmission and the variants, yada, yada, yada. But there was something actually that really caught my eye in yesterday's newsletter, which was this idea of languishing. So I'm just going to read a little passage from it. Um, a year in, we are languishing. That's the academic term for the collective fog we've endured for more than a year. Trouble concentrating, trouble staying motivated, trouble getting excited about the future. Languishing isn't burnout, which is moral lack of energy. It's not depression with its lack of hope. Instead, it's a sense of stagnation, emptiness, and just getting by. A malaise that might be the dominant emotion of 2021. There's still more research to do, but giving the emotion a name might give us a way to move forward. It could give us a socially acceptable response to how are you? Instead of saying great or fine, imagine if we answered, honestly, I'm languishing. It would be a refreshing foil for toxic positivity, that quintessentially American pressure to be upbeat at all times. So we're obviously in Canada, but I think that that idea of toxic positivity and that pressure to be upbeat is as quintessentially Canadian as it is American. Uh, so I'm here to say 
that honestly, uh, I'm languishing a bit right now. You know, we're under this stay at home order here in Toronto because our cartoonishly inept provincial government has repeatedly failed to get a handle on this pandemic, despite constant warnings from public health officials that this was where we were bound to end up if we kept relaxing restrictions rather than enacting proactive preventative measures as these variants started to take hold. Uh, You know, things like mandating paid sick leave, closing non-essential workplaces, prioritizing vaccinating essential workers. But instead, we've got skyrocketing daily case counts that are higher than they've been at any point in the last 13 months. And we've got overflowing ICUs and field hospitals setting up to deal with the overflow. And uh, the government response, for some reason, has been to expand police power and to close down outdoor facilities so a person can't even blow off some steam on the tennis court. So there it is. I'm languishing a bit. And I'm starting to feel like that's a pretty good descriptor for this NBA season as well, because, uh, you know, there have been a ton of dispiriting injuries. Some guys are still feeling the lingering effects of COVID. Multiple stars are out of the lineup in seemingly every game. Players are starting to look physically and emotionally worn down. I know, like, Steph Curry has been doing his damnedest over the past few weeks to keep it exciting. Man. And Nikola Jokic, I'd say, has been doing his part as well, but... <laughs> For the most part, I don't know, man. That's that's how it feels to me like this NBA season has been languishing a bit. What do you think? Yeah, I think I said it earlier in the season where it felt like basically from the jump of this season, it's just felt like the dog days of it. You know, usually in an, in a regular NBA season, maybe in like January-ish, maybe slightly after the All-Star break, it's it's the dog days of the season. You know, the teams that are out of it aren't really providing any sort of excitement. The teams that are running away in the standings are starting to rest guys or maybe just like taking their foot off the gas a bit. And they just kind of got the meat in the middle that, meh. But this season has just felt like that the whole time, you know, not necessarily because of the standings or anything, but just the quality of play, which obviously is connected to the injuries and the fact that this is all going down in the middle of the pandemic and players themselves have had COVID and took a while to recover. So yeah, just in general, this season has been one long groundhog day of a dog day <laughs> a dog if, if you season. Get me. yeah a dog season um but you know we're getting through it players are getting through it hopefully healthy but not all of them are healthy and um you know look i don't know how much we can connect the dots between the shorter off season and the condensed schedule you know i'm sure there is some connecting to do we are not doctors or sports scientists so we can't you know provide much evidence of it but there has been plenty written about the fact that teams themselves and executives and sports scientists and the training staff for teams are concerned about not just the injuries and the soft tissue injuries being suffered this season because of all this condensed schedule, but the long-term effects of this. I think Baxter Holmes for ESPN yeah. had a great piece where he talked to a lot of sports scientists and executives who you know, had some really powerful quotes. And I thought, look, that piece in general, I thought you know, it definitely did a good job of explaining the situation, detailing the concerns a lot of people have. And I think for the most part, you know, as all of us would agree, if there was blame to be laid anywhere, it would be with the league and the owners as a whole and the the TV networks even for wanting to make sure they're made whole for what they're paying for. But he does also acknowledge that 
you know, the Players Association ultimately did agree to it. Now, were they over a barrel a little bit agreeing to it? Of course. And I think, you know, most of our listeners, and I know the two of us are obviously usually going to be pro player in these situations. So I'm not at all, you know, saying they're to blame for this, but I did think there was a really great line towards the end of that Baxter Holmes piece where a GM said, it's a shared responsibility driven almost exclusively by the seduction of money. And look, that's, that is what it is, right? On, on both sides, more so on the owner side, but still on both sides. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the effects of that, whether in the injury reports or whatever, and in the quality of play. And it seems like we're going to see the effects of that potentially long term. We hope not. But, you know, who are we to argue against sports scientists and NBA executives who have access to those sports scientists who are saying there will be long term damage to players? It's definitely a concern. And I think you can say that the Player Association deserves some blame. And that mm-hmm. this was about making money for the players as well. And I'm all for, you know, levying some criticism against the NBPA for, for not doing more to make sure that the schedule was going to be a, a little bit more amenable to player health and safety. But at the end of the day, and you mentioned this, it's like, it, it sure seems like to a certain extent, they were strong armed into accepting this condensed schedule all of the makeup games that are now happening in the second half of the season because the league and its broadcast partners are dead set on meeting, you know, that 72 game threshold and hearing the players talk about all-star weekend, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of enthusiasm about that. That didn't seem like that was an idea that was coming from the player side. And throughout all of this, it's like, you know, the owners are the ones who are more financially stable who are going to be able to survive uh, an extended work stoppage if it comes to that. And they've sort of held that force majeure clause over the players like a cudgel. And yes, like you can place blame on both sides and say the players agreed to this. They knew what they were getting themselves into. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to say they don't have any power in, in this situation, but they don't have as much. And I don't think that they bear the brunt of the responsibility for the situation that we find ourselves in with this, you know, with that ridiculously brief off season and condensed schedule that has followed. Man, I pointed it out as soon as the schedule first came out that between this year's schedule and the fact they want to start next year on time, that when the 2021, 2022 season tips off, if it does tip off on time in mid to late October, over the span of just over 12 months, just over a calendar year, the NBA will have played parts of three seasons, two playoffs, and an Olympic tournament in 12 to 13 months. Yeah, it's not ideal. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious, I guess, to see how many NBA players actually participate in the Olympics because I, I would think that the vast majority of them are going to prefer to just take that time off. I almost think like the players union might have to just intervene and be like, based on what, like, you know, the medical advice that we're getting from league health officials, it's not a good idea for anybody to participate in the Olympic tournament. You know what I mean? Like it might take some, Mm -hmm. some kind of drastic measure like that to protect players from themselves. I think I've referenced this on this podcast before, but Marshawn Lynch, the great and entertaining football player had that famous 
press conference a couple of years ago or however long ago it was when and everyone laughed at it at the time because he you know didn't say it in normal English but when he said uh, protect your mentals and protect your chicken your bread um, I, I think that is a lesson that a lot of NBA players could use this year as it pertains to whether to go to Japan for the Olympics or not as it pertains to how to handle their bodies you know down the stretch of the season the off season heading into next season because uh, their uh, window to maximize the financial opportunity that comes with their, you know, one in a however million talent, it's a small window. And a crazy condensed year like the one we're in right now could severely alter and shorten that window. So yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure most of them do have the right people around them, to, you know, advising them, but uh, I, I really hope they do because there will be tough decisions that need to be made in the coming months. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about some of these teams that are sort of going through some stuff right now and maybe languishing a bit, as it were. And that might be a little bit strong, I guess, with the first team that we're going to talk about. But the Nets, I, I think you and I would both agree that at full strength, they're an overwhelming favorite to come out of the Eastern Conference. Maybe the favorites to win the championship or like at worst, probably you'd say the co-favorites right now. But Look, their big three has still played just seven games together and been on the floor together for a grand total of 186 minutes. Durant was out for a while with that calf injury, finally makes it back, and just as he's coming back, Harden goes out with this hamstring issue. And then a couple games after KD was back, and he started out coming off of the bench, he was on a minutes restriction. He goes out again with this thigh contusion, and it's just been like the whole season, you know, at one point it was Harden just sort of carrying the team by himself. Now it's Kyrie doing it. And they've still held up pretty damn well in spite of all that, right? Like they're just a game out of first in the East. And that's why you go out and get a third star, right? Like it, it, it affords you that kind of injury insurance. But when we start thinking about their championship aspirations, at what point do we need to start being concerned about their health situation and just the lack of reps and the lack of familiarity because their key guys just haven't really gotten to play together. Like, you know, where, where are you at with the nets right now? Are you, are you concerned about this at all? Or you just think it's ultimately they're going to be healthy for the playoffs. That's why they're playing things cautious right now. And once that happens, you know, they're just going to run roughshod over the rest of the East. Well, if and when that happens, then yes, I believe they will run Rushout or the East, but I am officially concerned about whether that will happen, whether they will truly be healthy for the playoffs. When the Nets signed Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, I, like many people, despite obviously lauding them for signing two guys everyone wanted to sign and building themselves up to a point where they were able to do that, I expressed concern over the fact that, you know, KD would be a, by the time he got back to the court, a 31 or 32-year-old seven-footer coming off a devastating Achilles injury and Kyrie for all of the things we've praised them for over the last couple of years off the court as I've said many times I still wouldn't want to be the team from a basketball perspective only I would not want to be the team relying on Kyrie Irving to be available if my championship hopes are riding on that the thing I loved about the Harden deal is I no longer thought that was the case you know mm -hmm. Kyrie being there is just an added benefit and makes it overwhelmingly unlikely a team in the East could beat them when healthy. But even without Kyrie, once they made that Harden trade, 
I was convinced like no one's beating this team. Even if it was just KD and Harden in the lineup and Kyrie was doing whatever Kyrie does, they'd still be fine. The reason I'm officially concerned is because now this is trickling down to Harden and Harden has had health issues this season. And look, man, hamstring stuff is, is tricky. You know, Harden in his, whatever it was, eight year run in Houston about that averaged four missed games per season. Like that guy was a model of durability, the likes of which few superstars other than LeBron can really compare themselves to. The fact that Harden has been in and out of the lineup like this and, you know, again, now we're talking about a hamstring issue. That's what concerns me because if the most durable of the three is now also dealing with some kind of soft tissue stuff that we don't know how it might linger and whether he'll be at full strength. Yeah, I think that's when it's like, okay, it's officially time to maybe not panic, but definitely be concerned because again, Kyrie, love him or hate him, from a basketball availability standpoint, you have to admit that you cannot be certain, right? How available he will be. I've mentioned before, I think he's missed like a quarter of his team's playoff games in his career due to injury and stuff. So that's its own concern. KD, again, coming off the injury he came off of, you can't quite be certain. Like Harden was the, the one out of the three that was supposed to be as close to a guarantee as you can get that he will at least be on the court. Now that that's not the case either. Yeah, that's, don't want to repeat myself here, but yes, that, now it's time to be concerned. Let's say only two of those guys are available for the playoffs. I mean, obviously it would depend on the combination, right? And I think yes. actually, I think KD would have to be one of those two guys for, for yes. them to be considered the favorite in the East. But let's say it was KD and one of Harden or Kyrie. And again, there's a, there's a big distinction there. But Yes. <laughs> um, so let's, let's look at it from both angles, right? Like let's say it's, KD and Kyrie, who are the two that are available and Harden's not available for the playoffs. How much confidence do you have in the Nets to come out of the East at that point? I think they can still get to the finals. I think they would definitely still get to the East finals, but I think it would be a very tough East finals if it's KD and Kyrie in the supporting cast. If if they wind up, I mean, right now it's looking like they're going to wind up in the two seed. And that means... Which means Milwaukee. Milwaukee in the second second round. round. So... That's uh, that's certainly no cakewalk. It, it, no, it's not. It's not. I still think they'd get by them with KD healthy mm-hmm. and Kyrie. If um, it's KD and Harden healthy, yeah, with no Kyrie, I st- then I'm even more confident they get to the finals. <laughs> but I think KD would need to be either diminished or out for me to pick against them making the finals. Yeah, I I, I mean, and the thing with the familiarity stuff. I think ordinarily that's something I would be very concerned about. I think even in the very limited run that we saw with those three guys, it just seems very easy, right? Like the individual ball handling, shooting, and just like self-creation that you get with those three guys, I think minimizes like the fit issues and, and like, I think it makes it less of a concern that they wouldn't like be able to get on the same page or like iron out the kinks in time for them to like start clicking come playoff time. You know what I mean? Like even if it's not like a well-oiled machine with the screening and cutting and just like their timing together, I I don't know that it would matter just because of like what those guys can do in isolation and 
how much attention they can siphon away from each other. It's just, it's obviously not ideal that they're going to have so few reps together, but I just don't think that that's enough for me to knock them off of that perch as East favorites, if they're going to be fully healthy going into the playoffs. Yeah, they could not play another game together, the three of them, until game one of the playoffs. And if they are healthy and on the court for game one of the playoffs, I will pick them to come out of the East. Uh, For the reasons you mentioned, this is not the type of talent that really needs meshing time. There's too much creativity there, too much individual offensive creativity and talent, too much overall offensive talent for them to need 20 games to gel. They just need to be on the court. And they'll figure it out. And again, if KD is on the court with at least one of Harden or Kyrie, I think they should win the East. If it's Harden, I think they will definitely win the East. And if it's all three of them, they can win a championship. It does. Again, yeah. All that said, it cracks the door open a little bit wider, right? I think, of course, for for other East teams that are maybe monitoring the situation, there is sort of a glimmer of hope there where that might give another team a reason to believe that they can knock the Nets off. I guess we should also mention that, you know, in the midst of all this in and out of the lineup stuff with their three stars, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge retired kind of out of nowhere um, because of a heart condition. So, look, I, I, you know, I mentioned on the pod when we talked about the buyout market and whether this was actually going to impact the title race at all. Like, I, I didn't really expect him to be playing important minutes for them in the playoffs, but you know, it was another option that they had for, you know, matchup purposes and a guy who I guess gave them just another card to play, I suppose, that they've lost. And I don't actually think it's a big deal from the Nets perspective, but from LaMarcus Aldridge's perspective, that's really tough. It had to be a tough decision for him to make. And I think it's obviously, it's got to be really difficult to basically have that decision be taken out of your hands and have to give up that the thing that you love while you still feel like you're capable of doing it at a high level. Especially when he had a real chance to win a championship, you know, the first chip of his career yeah. and and maybe contribute to it in a a meaningful way. But uh you know, very very few get to go out on their own terms and uh, I think, you know, based on the health scare that he described in the letter that he wrote sort of announcing his retirement, I think this was very clearly the right decision for him and his family so you know kudos to LaMarcus on a fantastic career and much as it sucks to see it end this way he had a hell of a run yeah and I hope he can enjoy a happy and healthy retirement first and foremost um just for people that uh maybe haven't watched as as the Nets as much this season although I, I doubt there's many of those people around because even without Harden they were one of the most watched teams I think we should point out just like how good Durant has been when he has been healthy and how he has essentially not lost a step when he has been on the court. The guy's averaging essentially 27 points, seven rebounds, five assists, and a block on 54, 46, 87 shooting. Other than his MVP season, it's pretty much in line with every other Durant season we can remember, including his last one with the Warriors when he was just out of this world. The catch, obviously, being he's done that in only 24 games and has only played six of the last 33. So, Yeah, and I mean, we, we've obviously talked about Harden and how brilliant he's been in Brooklyn. We haven't talked all that much about Kyrie. I feel like he's maybe a little bit of the forgotten man in all this, but he's been incredible as well. Like, 
I mean, obviously, nobody needs to be told that, like, Kyrie is just an absolute wizard as a ball handler and, like, a, a spectacular shot maker. But, I mean, he's also snapped off some pretty incredible passes this season. And I think he's always been a little bit underrated as a playmaker because playmaking isn't really his sort of, like, go-to option, I guess. It's not the thing that comes most naturally to him. And he's more of a scoring guard than a playmaking guard. But, like, when he wants to, um, I don't know. I, just, I, just, I think... Like with both of those guys now out of the lineup, he's done a pretty excellent job of keeping that team afloat. You know, maybe not to the same extent that Harden did when he was the lone wolf, but I think Kyrie deserves his flowers for the season that he's been having. It's been awesome. Yeah, he's been he's been incredible this year, including as you mentioned when he's been on his own. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. The other two teams I wanted to talk about today are last year's two finalists. And this maybe ties in a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, you know, talking about that, that abbreviated off season and how it's impossible to say with any degree of certainty, what kind of effect that's actually had and how much causation is in the correlation there. But obviously for both the Lakers and the heat this season, defending in the Lakers case, the championship in Miami's case, the Eastern conference championship, hasn't exactly gone to script. Uh, and, and there are myriad reasons for that for both teams, and, and many of them are wholly understandable. But I, I wanted to check in on those two teams, especially with you, because, I mean, last season, Cash, your, your takes were on point. You said from the beginning of the season that you expected the Lakers to win the championship. You were a Miami believer from day one, despite some potential red flags and persistent doubts from me and questions that, that I would pose about their roster construction and some flaws I thought might get exposed in the playoffs, but your faith was validated as they went to the finals. So here we are this season and, you know, the, these two teams are struggling the Lakers obviously have been without LeBron James and Anthony Davis for the last 16 games. They've been without AD for two months now in total. And for Miami, I mean, like they, they dealt with their injury stuff and, and some COVID absences early in the season. But compared to like the rest of the league, I wouldn't say that they've been hit particularly hard on either of those fronts. And... They've been close to whole for a while now, and they still can't seem to string together a sustained stretch of impressive play. Like, they still have a negative scoring margin. So I'll throw it to you, man, and, and you can tell me, I guess, what your concern level is for, for either or both of these teams, uh, and you can decide where you want to start off. Let's start with Miami because... The Lakers, I don't see as necessarily struggling so much as just they need to get their two best players and the best combo in the league 
the championship winning combo healthy. And and to me, that's all it is. And we can talk about the Lakers in a bit and about how I've actually been impressed with their play without those guys, mm-hmm. especially on the defensive end. The reason I think we should start with Miami is because Miami actually concerns me. This is a team, as you mentioned, that I was high on last year, you know, thought they had a chance, thought they would beat Milwaukee in the playoffs and could make the finals. They did that. This year, I picked them to make the East finals and to lose to Brooklyn in the East finals. And they don't look like a team right now capable of even doing that. And I think the injury stuff and the COVID, like all of that is real. I know you mentioned they've had their full complement of players for a while now and, and really haven't got fully back on track. I do think there was a bit of time there a few weeks ago where they did start to hit their stride. I think once Jimmy Butler came back, especially like when Butler first came back, he was he was playing at like an MVP level and the results were showing it. Um, I agree that overall, when fully healthy this year, they haven't really lived up to the billing. But if you go down this roster, you really do see how injuries have taken a toll. Like Duncan Robinson's the only guy that has played all 58 games for them. Do you know who's second in games played on the Heat this season? Uh, Precious Achua, maybe? Yes, Precious Achua. Okay, Adebayo's missed seven games, which obviously isn't that bad. But like, okay, Tyler Hero, who I'm I'm sure we'll talk about anyway, he's missed 12 games. Kendrick Nunn, who's come on for them lately, uh, has missed 14 games. Jimmy Butler's missed 17 games. Dragic has missed 20 games. Like, those are big numbers in an already condensed season. So while I agree with you that they haven't played up to their capabilities or hit their ceiling when fully healthy, they really haven't been fully healthy for all that long. And it just seems like there's always one key guy out for an extended period of time. So injuries definitely have derailed their season a bit, but I am way more concerned about them than I am about the Lakers. For one, the floors are just very different. (laughs) The Lakers floor is way higher than the Heat's floor, and we're seeing that right now. But I don't know. The, the strange thing with the Heat is like, you know, you mentioned some of the red flags you thought might hinder them in the playoffs last year. And I know something a lot of people envisioned going into the playoffs was that the issue was that, you know, their best shooters were also their weakest links on the defensive end. And it's like, how do you square that? But again, if you look at the way things are going this season, the defense continues to hold up. I think it's like top six, top seven right now. And the offense is where they struggle. They are seventh from the bottom in offense, despite the fact that, as I mentioned, Duncan Robinson has actually played every game. So it's not necessary. I know he's only one man, but he's one hell of a man when it comes to shooting. I definitely don't think we can point to the heat and say, oh, the reason, you know, their offense is bottom seven is they just haven't had enough shooting on the floor. I, I think they've had at least an adequate, maybe not, you know, their preferred amount of shooting, but I think for the most part, for the majority of the season, they've had at least an okay level of shooting on the floor. Definitely not to the point where you'd be like, wow, there's not enough shooting on the floor. They're going to be terrible offensively. So my question is, why isn't it working outside of that? Okay, maybe the shooting hasn't been exactly what they envisioned it to be, but bottom seven is the 24th ranked offense. I think, I don't know, can we just chalk that up completely to injuries and and them not having you know, their peak amount of shooting on the floor at all times? I don't think so. I think there's got to be something else going on there. I don't pretend to know what the answer is. Well, I mean, you want to talk about the shooting and take the simplistic view. Like they were second in the league in three-point percentage last year, and this year they're 23rd. So, you know, Duncan Robinson has been good, but he hasn't shot it quite as well as he did last year. Tyler Hero hasn't shot it nearly as well as he did last year. Dragish hasn't shot it as well as he did last year. They lost Jay Crowder, who came over in the middle of the season, but in the few games that he played after the trade deadline was absolutely blistering from three-point range for them. 
they haven't really found a replacement for him. So that on its own can explain a lot, I think. You know, there's also just... I think they don't really have a dual shooting and playmaking threat who can really bend defenses off of the dribble. And they like thought they, they thought Tyler Hero could be that guy. They thought. Right. And and you know what? Dragic was that guy for them in the bubble as well. Mm-hmm. And and neither of those guys, and Dragic has kind of like been dealing with some injury stuff and maybe starting to show his age a little bit with Hero. I think it's maybe just he's not at that level yet, or maybe he's not that player. He he just with either of those guys, I guess, you know, was it bubble magic? Because this is actually sort of what I expected this team to look like last year. And I don't know, maybe they just caught a team-wide heater. And right now they're dealing with the fallout of what's actually a fairly shoddy roster construction. Because if Hero and Dragic aren't those guys, it's like, yeah, they, they don't have that off-the-dribble threat who can really force the opponent to send two to the ball or force constant switches, you know? Oladipo, who, you know, they they got him at the deadline and it was a move that we praised because of how low risk it was. As much as, like, when he was healthy, he was doing a decent job, I think, cutting and and doing the handoff dance with Bam. He wasn't putting any pressure on the defense with his jumper. Like, he couldn't hit anything. And I think... Let's be honest, he looked pretty bad. (laughs) Well, I thought, you know... And I wrote about this a bit. I actually I thought he looked pretty fine at the defensive end and fit nicely into their scheme. But yeah, offensively it was rough, without a doubt. And, and that lack of the off the dribble shooting threat does put a lot of pressure on their handoff actions and their split cuts, and that leads to a lot of turnovers. And it also often just leaves Bam and Jimmy to kind of create something out of the triple threat. And with their personnel like they can't really go mismatch hunting. And the thing is like, like Jimmy, as you mentioned, has been unbelievable. And Bam, I think has been unbelievable as well. But with the rest of the roster, it's, I don't know. I think we have to question at this point, whether that supporting cast is actually what it looked like it was in the bubble or whether, you know, they are the team that I thought they were last year where it's like Jimmy and Bam, trying to drag a kind of uninspiring supporting cast to, you know, incredible aspirational heights. And I just, I don't know if they're going to be capable of that this year. Like right now, I mean, they're still only a game and a half out of fourth in the East, but right now it's looking a whole lot more likely that they're going to be a first round out than it is that they're going to make it to the conference finals. What place are they in right now? Seventh. You're, you're, I know you're, you're circling that Milwaukee first round matchup, right? That's what you're looking forward to. I am. But, but if that happened, I mean, would you feel comfortable picking Miami this time around? I would feel nowhere near as confident as I was last year. Because as you know, like last year, last year it wasn't me like trying to do a hot take. Last year, I legitimately believed the Heat were well built to beat that Milwaukee team and legitimately picked them and thought they would do that. This year, if I did it, it would be a little more of like, more so heart than head, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this year, if they matched up, I would say the Bucks should beat them. Whereas last year, I'd go into that matchup saying, no, I actually think the way these teams are constructed, Miami should beat Milwaukee. This year, it'd be the opposite. This year, I'd say Milwaukee should beat them. And if they don't, that is a far greater um, story of Milwaukee's flaws. Yeah. Like maybe psychologically than anything else. Milwaukee should beat Miami this year. Having said that, 
I still think that it it would be closer than a lot of people would give it credit for. Like I still, not to bring up the same crap, you know, I, I talked last year all season, but I still do think there is something to be said about Jimmy Butler's sheer force of will, um, the level Bam has been playing at this year. And, you know, if those two guys are playing at their absolute apex, I don't think you need as much to go right for you, you know, along the margins. Again, not saying they'll beat Milwaukee again, but I still think if those two guys are healthy and they get just a little bit of help, I think they can definitely scare the hell out of the Bucks again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Like, I, I don't think anyone wants... I know this is like overplayed and cliche, and we can say this about so many teams in basically every sports league, but the whole like, you don't want to see this team in the playoffs or like no one, but legitimately just like the way the Heat play and with Butler, I I don't think any of those like contenders want to see Miami in the playoffs, you know, especially in the first round. Like that would be a tough break for the Bucs too. Yeah, they draw the heat in the first no, round for sure, and I think that's just as much a statement on like the rest of the teams in the East playoff yes. bracket than it is about Miami, right? Like, obviously, yeah, the Bucks would prefer to see the Knicks or the Hornets or even the Hawks, who have been playing really, really well of late. But I just think, yeah, that would be my, Milwaukee's preference would be to play one of those teams rather than Miami. But I, I am interested in in Miami's defense because you mentioned like they're sixth in the league in defensive rating. Uh, and they've really amped up the aggressiveness at that end of the floor. <laughs> it's, it's, it it doesn't make sense. I'll be honest with you. It's it's the results are working for them. Yeah. But yeah, so I I was watching them play the Grizzlies a few weeks back, and they're like blitzing Dylan Brooks in the pick and roll, and th- there was a couple plays where they like literally triple teamed Desmond Bain, and it's like okay, I, like I get what you're trying to do. They're a pressure defense. They force a ton of turnovers. And, you know, a a lot of coaches sort of just like to inject that kind of activity into their defense to get people moving and get them defending on a string. And Miami does that really well. But sometimes like, like, can you guys scale it back a bit? Like sometimes they're just giving the offense an easy out where it's like, you know, maybe play Dylan Brooks straight up and and make him make a play or make a shot off the dribble rather than just like giving him the easy out pass because you've blitzed him and now your corner guy has to pinch in and now he just has an easy flip to the wing for an open three. Yeah, Um, Chill, Coach Spo. You don't need to trap Joe Wolf on coming off a pick and roll, (laughs) right? Like, it's fine, you know? Um, Because they absolutely would. I'll tell you right now, the way they're playing defense right now, you or I would get trapped coming off the pick and roll. Yeah, and that would be a smart idea because I would turn the ball over every (laughs) single time. But uh, when it's it's NBA players, like, that's going to burn them some of the time. And... It hasn't because, again, their defense has been borderline elite all season. I do think, you know, it's sort of a similar rationale to why they played zone so often last year. And they're still playing a lot of zone this year, but not as much. But I think it's a similar theory, which is like, you know, they they do play a lot of these weaker individual defenders who they don't necessarily want to switch with. And they don't necessarily want to leave in single coverage. And so the blitzing can kind of keep those guys out of unfavorable mismatches. And again, like that's, I think that's part of the reason why they play zone sometimes. It's like it's easier to have those guys guard spots on the floor than to guard individual players. But I do think, you know, that's something that they could maybe just deploy a little bit more situationally. And I feel the same about their switching sometimes, right? Like uh, they, they blitz a lot, but they also switch a ton. And there's times when it's just, they just seem like they're doing it just to do it. You know, like that game, they kind of inexcusably lost to the Timberwolves last week. It's like, 
you know, Rubio Towns pick and rolls and Anthony Edwards Towns pick and rolls that they're switching with like very little resistance. And yeah, obviously Bam's a great switch defender who can corral any ball handler on a switch. But like, why are you just gifting them that size mismatch with Towns underneath? Like this isn't Rudy Gobert where it's like, yeah, if you dare him to beat you in the post, like that's a win for the defense. Carl Anthony Towns can do some damage in the post, and they yeah. just kept giving him. Might that. be the most skilled offensive big man we've ever seen. That's the thing. So, yeah, w- like, why not just like go under on Rubio and Edwards and like make them make a play rather than giving them giving them that kind of easy out of switching a smaller guy onto Towns? It just stuff like that has been a little bit confusing to me. Where I just feel like they could be a little bit more selective in how they deploy that those schemes, but. You know, I do think a big part of what's worked for their defense is the fact that they have the scheme versatility, right? Like they can toggle from one thing to the next. They can play zone, they can switch, they can blitz. Like they have a lot of reps doing all of those different things. And maybe that's part of what they're going for. Yeah, but I do think it's funny and ironic that a team that is so malleable and versatile in terms of the different schemes they can employ is very rigid in the way they execute each scheme once they're in it. You know what I mean? It, it, it kind of goes to what you're saying. It's like, yeah, they can do like seven different things defensively and and pick and choose when they do it. But once they settle on something, maybe for that play or that segment, like they're going to be very rigid about the way they execute it. Case in point, they'll weirdly concede a switch that takes Bam off towns and now has like whoever on towns, you know, getting eaten up inside. Yeah. Do you think we underrated the loss of Kelly Olynyk? <laughs> Not- now that he's flourishing okay, the I, way that he is in Houston and, and beat man, his, his first week in Houston was insane. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he shot like 31% from three with Miami this season. So it didn't seem like, you know, he was a guy who was out there to be a stretch four for them. And sometimes I guess a stretch five for them, but he hadn't been shooting the ball particularly well. And I think a, a big part of the reason we didn't harp on the loss of Olenek was that they got Nemanja Bielica, who seemed like he'd be a pretty functional Olenek replacement. But that hasn't been the case at all. Like, Bielitsa's been very bad. And he's not very alert as a team defender. And coupled with his lack of foot speed, that just poses kind of a problem. And so if he's not giving you anything offensively, which he's not right now, he hasn't shot the ball well at all. Uh, yeah, like, that's that's a tough combo. Bielitsa will shoot the ball well for them, I think. That'll improve, I think, between now and the playoffs, but he's not going to up his defensive IQ between now and the playoffs. He is what he is in that regard. And that's a clear downgrade from Kelly Olenek, who is a pretty smart player. I still think, like, look, even if if it ends up being riskier than we originally thought it was in the short term, I still think when you consider, like, the long-term play they had in mind, it's still going to be hard to say, oh, they shouldn't have done it, you know? Mm Okay, let's let's wrap up uh, the Miami segment with this. What do you think their eventual outcome actually is this season? Like where like at what point in the playoffs do they lose? Second round. Okay. Now that that depends on their of first course round is dependent on them. They they need to get into the 4-5. I think even if 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 they end up in the 4-5 with we'll say Boston, I think they beat Boston again like they did in last year's playoffs. Hmm. You know, if it's not bought, if they're in the four or five and it's not Boston, if it's like Charlotte or New York, all the credit in the world for what those teams have done this season, but they're not beating Miami in a playoff series. So I think if they, if, if the heat get into the four or five, I think they win a series. If they get to six, I think they push Milwaukee, but probably losing the first round. But yeah, I think 
That's what we're looking at. They're either losing in the first round or getting into the four or five and probably playing like a hard fought second round series. But I, I think, yeah, yeah, considering I, considering I picked them to get to the East finals, I would definitely say they're right now on a collision course with disappointment. I think I would probably pick Boston to beat them at this point. I think Boston's been playing yeah, I mean, way better. Tatum's been on one and Kemba's finally starting to come around a bit. Obviously he's not playing at the level that he was playing at last year or in prior years, but he's looked better. And, you know, since they kind of made Rob Williams a regular part of their rotation, I think the team has started to make a lot more sense. So yeah, I think if you were asking me right now, uh, if, if that was the four or five matchup, I think I would lean Boston, but obviously a lot can change between now and then. So we will see how all that shakes out for Miami, but let's move over to uh, the defending champs. The Lakers have gone seven and nine without LeBron and AD, which all things considered is pretty impressive. Like that's fantastic. You know, you think about, the fact that basically the biggest knock on this team last year and this year has been, okay, they, they, they clearly have the best top two in the league, but the drop off from number two to everybody else is so steep. And even like we, we said last year, like it's pretty rare to have a champion whose third best player is you know, Kentavious Caldwell Pope or whoever you want to say it was for that Lakers team last year. I would say it was probably KCP. And I don't necessarily think that's been the case this year. I think there are guys who have sort of surpassed him in the Lakers pecking order, but it's still like, you know, if your third best player is Dennis Schroeder, like that's uh, typically a weaker third wheel for a championship team. Given all that, you know, the fact that they went seven and nine and did so while maintaining the fourth best defense in the league during that stretch is pretty damn impressive. And uh, look, the offense was predictably a train wreck. They were 29th in the league during this stretch. I, I don't know if I should be talking about it in the past tense. AD was like cleared to return to practice and seems to be nearing a return to the court, but I don't know when that's actually going to happen. So in this ongoing stretch, they have ranked 29th in the league in offense. They're turning the ball over left and right which makes sense when you think about the fact that the guys who have been asked to initiate their offense are just not really natural creators. But I think overall, like I've come away pretty encouraged and impressed by what the supporting cast has managed to do. Yeah. And that's why I was saying earlier in the episode that like, I, I don't consider them struggling. Yes. Is seven and nine over a 16 game stretch. You know, I, I guess the definition of struggling. Sure. But seven and nine, for this roster without either of LeBron James or Anthony Davis while maintaining a top four defense, that's not struggling. That's overachieving. And yeah, I think Frank Vogel deserves a lot of credit. You know, we, we've seen over the years how LeBron led teams don't get much coaching praise. You know, if, if you're the coach of a LeBron led team, you're not going to get much praise uh, when the team wins and you'll probably get over criticized when the team loses I think Frank Vogel deserves a ton of credit, not just for leading this team to a championship last season, but in keeping this team afloat and then some without LeBron and AD this year, and especially on the defensive end. Like, okay, you know, Kyle Kuzma's an improved defender, sure. A guy like Dennis Schroeder does, even though he's not the best defender, he at least like tr gets after it on that end. But you go up and down this roster without LeBron and AD, it, it does not scream top five defense. 
you know, and the fact that they've been able to do that through effort, through good schemes, through smart game planning, through executing that game planning, through a lot of, you know, okay players staying locked in and buying into what the team is trying to do, which look is, it's a lot easier said than done. And this is a team coming off a championship that I think could be quite confident in the fact that once their guys get back, they would be fine, you know, and, and would still be competing for a championship this year. It's not easy to ha- like keep that buy-in while those guys are out when things really could have gone into the toilet pretty quickly. And I, I just think credit Vogel and all the players involved for continuing to hold on to that rope and not letting go of it. And, and um, you know, proving something for themselves as well while those guys are out. Because it, it really could have gone south in a hurry. I mean, if they had if they had gone on some crazy losing streak or if they were 4-12 and 12 instead of 7-9, and nine, you know, that could be the difference of having to play a play-in game or not. Yeah. Which sounds crazy for the defending champion Lakers and LeBron AD, but really isn't that crazy given how compact the West is. So, yeah, take nothing away from what this team has done and, and what Coach Vogel has done. Yeah, I, I definitely think... It was not out of the realm of possibility that they were going to slip to the play-in. Um, I think Vogel and his staff deserve a ton of credit. Like, if you watch that defense, it's not like there are a ton of incredible individual defenders there. I think there are a lot of pretty good ones. Um, but it's just like the way that they communicate and the way that they sort of exchange assignments on the fly uh, and they do that seamlessly. Like, uh, you know, a lot of times, like they'll execute a jump switch where there's not even necessarily a screen, but a guy will be trailing um, or it's somebody coming from the corner to stop a guy on a drive. And then the guy who's chasing will immediately peel off to the corner and close off any creases. And they just do all of that really, really effectively. And I do think, I don't know if there's anybody in particular that has sort of popped to you during this stretch. And I, I was already like pretty high on Alex Caruso's defense, but holy crap, man, like that, that guy is one of the best point of attack defenders in the NBA. And I, I feel like there's been so much whiplash with Alex Caruso because it started out, you know, he was this balding kind of goofy looking dude who does not look like a hooper at all. And so the fact that he was playing and would occasionally make like really surprisingly athletic plays became this gimmick. And then there was like this overcorrection because everyone noticed that, you know, Bleacher Report or whoever else was like just tweeting at, like at an insane amount of Alex Caruso. And it felt like Lakers media saturation or exceptionalism or whatever. And there was all this Caruso backlash. And I think you know, the reality is, yes, he's a role player and it's, you know, he shouldn't be getting treated like a star, but that dude can freaking defend. And I think he's going to have a really important role to play for them in the playoffs because for one thing, you know, the stretch has highlighted how good he is defensively. I think it's also highlighted the fact that he can do some stuff with the ball in his hands. Like he's gotten way more comfortable making plays on the move and, you know, not just being kind of a cutter and stationary shooter. So Kudos to him. I don't know if you wanted to point it out, you know, or shout out anybody else who you feel like has kind of popped during this stretch, but that's the guy to me who has been really impressive. I mean, we've talked before about how Kuzma is a much improved defender and and for a long time didn't get credit for that. I mean, look, he, he's still prone to his bouts of poor shot selection here and there. And, you know, we can laugh about the fact that it often looks like LeBron, <laughs> LeBron gets annoyed with him on the offensive end sometimes, but the guy is a much improved defender and a smarter player over the last couple of years and I think he's you know had, had a role to play in this seven and nine stretch with a good defense 
Um, but Crusoe for me is someone that I, yeah, I wanted to praise as well, because I think you hit it on the head with the fact that it had almost become like a caricature of itself, the coverage of him, but in people trying to separate themselves from the kind of like satirical praise of him, I think they almost separated themselves from understanding that he's like a quality role player and really good at his job in the NBA. And there is a lot of value in what he can do on the court on the defensive end. And yeah, if, if, if he defends at this level with some playmaking chops and off the bounce chops, like that's how you carve out a lengthy career in the NBA. And I'll say too, like if, if all defensive teams were truly awarded by merit, like every single year, if we can know, you know, every single year, the top X amount of players are going to get rewarded as all NBA or sorry, as all defensive team selections. Like I would say that, you know, I think Caruso could make an all defensive team in his career. Like that's how good his defense has been at the point of attack. So like I said, take nothing away from him, from anyone that's been on the court in these 16 games or from Frank Vogel and his staff. What have you thought of uh, Drummond so far? Meh. It, it is. He, you know, like, I wouldn't say he's been disappointing. He is who he is. He's what I expected. He can be an absolute train wreck offensively. And he even admitted, I think, last week that he's never struggled like this on the offensive end, which is saying something because he's never been a great offensive player. Um, and, and defensively, I think he's up and down. I think there are games when stays within himself a little more and he can just kind of do his job defensively as a big man by just being big, mm-hmm. you know, and being smarter in the way he chases rebounds and stuff. But then I think there are some games where even his defense leaves a lot to be desired, whether it's like an inconsistent effort or him mistiming his jumps and not really seeming like he fully grasps the schemes that he's supposed to be anchoring. Um, so the defense comes and goes. The offense has been mostly a train wreck. And I think anyone who sees what he's done so far with the Lakers as a disappointment is telling on themselves that they probably didn't watch much Andre Drummond this season because this is who he is. And this is why I wrote the column I did and did the YouTube video I did about how people needed to stop whining about the buyout market because the Lakers didn't get like a star quality center for nothing. You know, don't let Andre Drummond's stats fool you. We're going on to year whatever it is of his career now. People haven't figured that out. Like, they're beyond helping. Um, okay, I'm going to make some counterpoints. All right. One of them is he's been getting just entirely too many post-ups. He's not a good post player at all. Yeah, he's terrible. He, I haven't checked since their last game, but basically, I mean, I wrote a piece about the Lakers supporting cast, so I can plug that now, I suppose. But Do it. But, but uh, buried within that piece was a stat that Drummond had, I think, five turnovers out of post-ups since joining the Lakers compared to two made field goals. He's not good at diagnosing help. He gets the ball out of his hands way too slowly when double teams come. And he's not effective at finishing at the basket. So it's just not really a a productive play type. And I think those are basically just going to fall by the wayside when AD and LeBron are back. And I think that's going to redistribute a lot of his used possessions to just basically being a role man or a scavenger on the offensive glass. And I think that's the right role for him, but he can't really fulfill that role right now because who's feeding him the ball in the pick and roll. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's just, it's just going to be entirely different when he's playing next to LeBron. 
And I think another important thing is the offensive rebounding is not nothing because with Gasol, if you're, if you're throwing a lineup of like LeBron, AD and Gasol out there, you're going to be very tough to score on inside. Like that is just airtight interior defense right there. But I think what that opens the Lakers up to is another team going small and playing five out and, and stretching them out to the point that like the interior defense just doesn't matter nearly as much. And I think they can get away with that because Mark is not at all a post-up threat and is not really a guy who gets a lot of offensive rebounds. And I think the math changes a bit when it's Drummond there instead of Gasol. Obviously the, the challenges as a post player are the same, but playing against a small ball lineup, Drummond can at least hurt them with, you know, the way that he can generate additional possessions on the offensive glass. And I think defensively, like you mentioned some of the limitations, he's not a particularly good rim protector. He's actually not a good defensive rebounder. Like the Lakers defensive rebound rate with him on the floor would rank dead last in the NBA. And that might be surprising for somebody whose raw rebounding numbers look off the charts, but he doesn't box out. Like he's not good at boxing out. Just, yeah, to interrupt you for a second. And I know obviously this isn't news to you and I'm sure there are plenty of our listeners who don't need to be told this, but I really would recommend like, even if you're a more casual fan who just kind of looks at rebounding numbers or even looks at, you know, says, okay, but I looked at the defensive rebounding numbers, not just the regular rebounds. I know this sounds kind of crazy, but being a good defensive rebounder in terms of actually collecting rebounds doesn't necessarily make you a great defensive rebounder because while yes you are technically collecting that rebound and closing that defensive possession you can be a player who chases rebounds or doesn't properly box their man out doesn't do a good job as a team defensive rebounder and over the course of a game you play enough minutes at your size you could collect enough defensive rebounding defensive rebounds while overall being a net negative for your team on the defensive glass. And I think Andre Drummond is exhibit A of that because you will frequently find him every single year at the top or near the top of the defensive rebounding leaderboard in terms of his raw numbers. And it rarely, honestly, almost never translates to his teams being better rebounding teams when he's on the court mm-hmm. as opposed to off. So again, here here's... Um you know, and I made this point to begin with, but I will kind of provide a counterpoint there, which is like when AD and LeBron are back and he's playing in lineups with both of those guys, I think the best way to use him is not in a drop. It's not like stationing him close to the basket because like I said, he's not even like a particularly good rim protector. And if you have AD and LeBron there as secondary rim protectors, essentially, you don't necessarily need Drummond to be close to the basket. Where he's actually effective is at hedging out to guys on the perimeter. Like he actually moves his feet pretty well and he's got really good hands and he can create deflections and turnovers out there on the edge. And they've done that actually. Like they they used him uh, in that game they played against Miami. Like he was hedging out high against Duncan Robinson and like kind of taking away his handoff game. And he can snuff stuff like that out against really dangerous movement shooters. So I think... They can do that a little bit with Gasol as well, but like he's obviously not as mobile as Drummond is. But I think that's the luxury of having the the amount of size and speed that LeBron and AD give you and the fact that like they can clean up any misses at the rim behind whatever pressure coverage you want to play. Like that gives them the option to just 
have Drummond be like really aggressive on the perimeter. And I actually think that's the best use of him. So I sort of think in a way his role will start to make more sense when those guys are back at the same time. I'm like very curious about how their front court rotation is going to shake out because what does that mean for Gasol? What does that mean for Harrell? Ultimately they're going to close games probably with AD at the five anyway. So I'm not sure like how that, center rotation is going to play out because to me Harold just makes the most sense as like a bench five right like he can actually create some shots for himself he's a pretty effective scorer out of the post he's a really really good finisher I don't know if it makes sense to have him playing the four does that mean like Gasol's out of the rotation then you know I, I'm not- I don't know because I think Marc Gasol might be the I think Marc Gasol might be the better overall center right now I mean, I think there's a case Despite, to be made that he just, that he makes more sense with the fully healthy Lakers team than yes. either of the other two guys do. But I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if they're going to play it that way. Like Drummond came in and was immediately starting for them, right? Which makes you wonder, like, did did they promise him that he was going to start and play a certain number of minutes? Like, was that uh, you know sort of part of the contingency of him signing with them? Almost surely, yes. <laughs> So I don't know. Like I, I just I think as much as I said, I think Drummond's role will make a lot more sense with the team when those guys are back. I also think, you know, when I when when AD is there, that creates some redundancies with the things that Drummond is good at. Whereas Gasol provides some things that I think are a little bit more unique in terms of his three point shooting, his high post passing, uh, his communication as a backline defender, and I. I just wonder if that makes him actually more more of a fit uh, with a fully healthy Lakers team. But I, I guess where I land with that is ultimately it's just nice to have all the, all the different options. And For sure. Yeah. For sure. And and as you mentioned, there are things he does well. Like he does have great hands for a big man on a defensive end. Um, and it shows in his steal numbers and his steal rate. It's a good problem to have, to have all those guys. You hope it doesn't become an actual problem in the sense where you know, if it does make more sense to close a game with Marcus Gasol or to maybe not have Andre Drummond play much at all that night in a specific playoff matchup, or for whatever reason, you hope it doesn't become an actual problem where he, you know, makes a stink about it or affects the camaraderie or chemistry of the team, given, you know, how thin the margins are between winning and losing in the playoffs. But I, I can't imagine him doing that. I think LeBron-led teams are uniquely insulated from that just because of his greatness and leadership and kind of his ability to for lack of a better term have everyone fall in line Mm -hmm. you know he he has an ability to get that kind of buy-in from teammates and so i think i'd I'd be more concerned about it on another team but yeah i I think there will be nights andre drummond doesn't play much at all in the playoffs and it'll be interesting to see how he reacts i will say uh one surprising way he's improved in terms of the numbers (laughs) i can't even get through this sentence is uh is as a roller in the pick and roll because uh-huh. out of the yeah out of the hundred guys who have uh, finished the most possessions as a roller this year, he's actually moved up from the last time I checked from 99th to 98th <laughs> out of a hundred. There you go. Leapfrogged Carmelo Anthony, <laughs> Aaron Baines still 100. Hey man, prog- progress is progress. Uh, who do you think out of those 100 guys who have finished the most pick and rolls as the roller this year is the most efficient at that? Uh, I mean, early in the season, it was Bam. I don't know if it's still Bam. Uh, I know Chris Boucher is up there. 
Um, Miles Bridges. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That caught me by surprise. Anyway, man, sh- enough about that. No, shouts to Miles Bridges, who's who's had a he- real, real nice breakout season. And, you know, I think that just kind of falls in line with the fact that I had some really good takes in 2020 that were just a year too early. And this year is the revenge of my 2020 takes because the heater frogs, Miles Bridges and Terry Rozier are breakout players and the Clippers are elite. Uh, I think Don't sleep on the Clippers, uh, man. I mean, listen, no one's sleeping on the Clippers. They've got Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I don't know how many people are sleeping on the I Clippers. I feel like people but are, though. Like, I, I mean, maybe, maybe maybe napping. Maybe not fully sleeping. Maybe they're, they're, they're afternoon napping yeah, on the Clippers. Don't afternoon nap on the Clippers. Um, I mean, I don't take naps to begin with, so. That's good. Never, I, mean, never yeah, caught I, I feel like absolute garbage anytime. I like it, it's nice when you lay down to take an afternoon nap, but then when you wake up, it's just the I, grog is yeah. Unshakable. I don't know how people do it. Yeah, I don't even mean it from like oh I don't nap. I just mean in general, like as you're mentioning, like I I physically don't know how to do it, and to then just like be okay the rest of the day or feel awake. Like I would feel more tired after napping than i would before now agreed uh, but anyway yeah shout out miles bridges because <laughs> i think in the shadow of mikhail bridges's breakout year i think miles bridges has actually been quietly having a breakout year of his own in charlotte and we ended up on this topic because uh, i wanted to poke fun at andre Drummond. So. <laughs> one man's loss is another's gain yeah i mean i look i i fully expected after Lamelo went down that that miles bridges would suffer for it because i think Early part of the season, the big part of the, like his scoring production was a result of just being on the other end of like Lamella Ball's passing. But instead, he's just sort of managed to up his volume and like create a little bit more for himself. And he hasn't missed a beat at all. If anything, he's been better since Lamella went down. Um, and Lamella, who was thought to be done for the season, is now nearing a return apparently. So maybe the Hornets will be able to uh, you know hold off Miami in that seeding jockeying uh, to stay out of the play-in in the East. Look at your Hornets. I mean, they're definitely not my Hornets, but they've been super fun to watch this year, so I'll give them that. Um, okay, let's let's just go back to the Lakers quickly to tie this off. <laughs> We've gone off the rails. Uh, what what does your ideal closing lineup look like for that team? I'd say, obviously, LeBron and AD with probably Schroeder, Caruso, who is the fifth? Hmm. I mean, I feel like it's basically between two guys. Man, Keith's been like pretty solid for them during this stretch. Oh. I would not, I would not, I would not give him the fifth spot. But I, I he wasn't he's one, been he wasn't one of the guys I had in mind. But he has been no, good. He he's been good for them, especially during this seven to nine stretch. But no, he wouldn't be the. Uh, would you go Harold? No. I think it's, it's too it, much of it's a liability. Kuzma or it's KCP, and with KCP, if you're also having yeah, you know what? No, I I'd go I'd go Kuzma. Yeah, I mean it's. I think the, like Kuzma has a case to be there regardless, and then maybe it just comes down to whether you want to have uh, like KCP or Caruso at the two. Because I think if you have all three of Schroeder, Caruso, and KCP, as much as like all three of those guys are very good defenders, I think that just leaves you maybe a little bit too small. But it, I think. Kuzma's made a case to be included in those closing groups. He, he's been very solid defensively. I think the Lakers have an 89 defensive rating when all 
of him, LeBron, and AD are on the floor together. So I wouldn't hate that. Yeah, and I, I think Schroeder brings the you know, the additional playmaking and, and creation that the Lakers craved when LeBron's off the court. But even when he's on the court, just like, you know, another release valve for Braun. So I think he's got to be on there. Caruso, we already talked about the combination of defense at the point of attack and a little bit of playmaking chops is, you know, pretty tough to replicate. So yeah, I mean, it's if it's between Kuzma and KCP and we're already saying Schroeder and Caruso probably need to be on the court, then I think you just have to go with Kuzma by default too because... I think they'd be in a tough spot having all of KCP, Caruso, Caruso, and Schroeder on the court. Mm-hmm. Especially, look, KCP surprised the hell out of me after I ripped him early last year. He came on incredibly strong down the stretch of the season. was amazing for them in the playoffs. As you mentioned, was probably their third best player in that championship run. But I think based on what we've seen this year, like he he's taken a pretty big step back. And I think it would be really hard to make the argument for him over one of Caruso or Schroeder this year. Yeah, I mean, his defense to me is still as good as it's ever been. I don't know that he's necessarily taken a step back at that end of the floor, but, you know, Caruso is just as good, if not a better defender than he is. And I think to me, he's honestly shown a little bit more. KCP is the better shooter, so maybe that's all that matters, honestly. But I think those two guys you could basically see as interchangeable in that closing lineup. So, yeah. We'll see how that shakes out. Some interesting rotation decisions that they have to make. And so long as they can stay in that 4-5 bracket, which it seems like they're going to be able to do, especially, you know, if if AD comes back soon and and LeBron is probably just like a couple weeks behind him, I feel good about their chances against a Jamal Murray-less Nuggets team. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say so. Well, look, you you can't take anything away from Nikola Jokic, man. Like, I'm not going to just... I'm not going to give the Lakers a cakewalk in that series, even though like I would consider them a heavy favorite because Jokic has honestly been that good. But yeah, I would feel good about the, I, I would feel actually just generally great about where the Lakers stood going into the playoffs. If they were in that four or five bracket, because I think they would feel pretty comfortable against a Murray list nuggets team in the first round. And they get through that and they'd probably be looking at getting the jazz in the second round which would be tough. Like the jazz are legit, but I'd feel worse about that if I was Utah than I would if I was the Lakers. So um, I think the Lakers would make light work of the jazz. Well, I don't know. (laughs) That's that might be a tad strong. I I, like the jazz are very good. I think they've, they, they have definitely earned our respect this season. Like they haven't slowed down. They uh, haven't slowed down at all, but uh, they are a great team. Yeah who I respect that I don't think can push the Lakers. <laughs> you don't think they can push them? I mean, like six game no. series, you think less, less no. than six games? Five. Yeah. If the, if the over under was 5.5 for Utah, LA, I'd take the under. I would take the over if it was Phoenix, LA. Mm. That's very interesting. Healthy nuggets, LA. I'd take the over for sure. Okay. Well, we'll have to table this and, and pick it up <laughs> at another time. Cause I, <laughs> If I go down that road, we're going to be here for like another hour because I have thoughts on all that stuff. But um, Okay, can I ask you one question before we get out of here? Sure. I know that you're the host this week and, and, and you also are stuck with editing duty again, so I don't want to keep us too long. No, but right. the, the Nuggets beat the Clippers last year. I picked them to beat them again and make the conference finals and play the Lakers again. I don't think they can beat them without Murray. But I'll ask you, given you know what you just said about Jokic, the fact that uh, I agree that Jokic is the MVP and nothing should be put past them. Do you think the Nuggets have a chance at all 
of beating the Clippers four out of seven without Jamal Murray. Not not a chance to push them, a chance to actually beat them. Like I'm talking, would you give them even a chance to win a playoff series against the Clippers, given the advantages they would still have with Jokic there against that Clippers team? Mm-hmm. Or do you think it's uh, do you think it's their the best pl- hope would just be to push the Clippers at this point? No, I mean you have to give them a chance, like. I think, and that's what I was saying, even, you know, if they face the Lakers in the four or five, it's like, Jokic has earned that. He, it's, it's rough because without Murray, like he just really doesn't have a lot of guard help. And that just puts so much of a strain on him because as much as I like to say, like Jokic is actually just like a seven foot guard. And we should sort of conceive of him that way and conceive of Denver's roster construction as if he is that. It's not quite the same, right? Like he's not breaking defenses down off of the bounce. Like, yes, he can run pick and roll as the ball handler, but he's not doing that at a high volume. And like he can be a pull up shooter and, you know, do all kinds of funky stuff with the ball in his hands to get himself a shot. But it's not the same as having somebody who's capable of coming off a screen and like bombing away from deep, right? Like there's stuff that he needs other players on the roster to be able to do that he just doesn't have right now. It would be an immense challenge and I would give them a very slight chance, like almost to the point that it's non-existent, but I just think he's been so ridiculously good. And especially in that Clippers matchup, like they still don't have a very good answer for him. I think it, you know, it's different maybe against the Lakers because the Lakers have a much better chance of actually just like handling him in single coverage than the Clippers do. So I guess against the Clippers, yeah, I'd have to give them an outside chance just because they are going to have to figure out what to do with him. And even without Murray there, like it's not going to be easy, but uh, obviously like their chances have taken a significant, significant hit. Yeah. I agree with you though, that it's a, it's greater than a 0% chance. It's a non-zero chance because Jokic is that good. And against the Clippers, especially, I think the matchup advantage is that real. Yeah, uh, and not to get derailed here again, but it's just, it's such a bummer because like their entire roster now makes so much less sense than it did after they made the Aaron Gordon trade. Like Gordon was looking like such a perfect fit there in those first few games after they got him. And now it's like, he he barely even played in the second half of their game last night against Memphis. Like he sat, I think, for basically the entire fourth quarter and the two overtimes because he was playing so poorly and like, the role that they got him to fill and the one that he was so much more adept at filling than the one that he was playing in Orlando is now no longer the role they need from him. Like now they need more creation off of the bounce and suddenly he's going to get shoehorned into this suboptimal role once again, um, after it seemed like he'd finally found the perfect situation and, you know, more burden of creation has fallen on Michael Porter Jr.'s shoulders. And it's just, I think like like every link in that chain is now so much more strained than it was before. No team had elevated their championship ceiling like Denver did at the deadline. And you, dude, you know how selective I am when it comes to like considering a team as an actual championship contender. Like I'll say teams are fringe contenders. I'll say, you know, this team can give this team a push, whatever. But in terms of actually giving a team its credit as a team that can legitimately win a championship, I am very selective. And after the deadline, I considered the Nuggets in that group. Like, I legitimately believed that team could win a championship as presently constructed. And and so, yeah, it is, you know, obviously it's a bummer for Jamal Murray himself, you know, first and foremost. But 
for the Nuggets and, and on a league-wide level, it is a big, big bummer because that is a genuine championship contender that has been largely eliminated from that process now. Yeah. And that, I mean, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about that injury when it happened and it feels like it's, uh, you know, been ages. But because we missed a week, I guess um, that's our opportunity to uh, kind of digest that injury news and what it means for Denver. So sorry for kind of going off topic here at the end and for extending this pod maybe longer than it needed to go. But again, we took a week off, so I guess we had to give you some bonus content here. I think that we can leave it there, Cash. How do you feel about that? I'm I'm good with that. You want me to hit a couple fan shout outs? Yes, please do. All right. John in Nashville, Tennessee, at Aiden John27 on Twitter. I've interacted with him a couple times over the last couple of weeks. He wrote in to say he loves listening to PTR and that uh, you guys, as in Joe and I, do a great job helping me round out my understanding of the league since I only get a chance to watch Grizz games here and there. So shout out, John. Thank you for being a listener. And shout out Nashville. Have not visited, but definitely one of the cities I want to visit because I've heard great things. And uh, second shout out this week is to Tim at T underscore Y 31 on Twitter, uh, who, who tweeted at me a couple of weeks ago to say that um, after, after reading my tweet where I was kind of joking around about taking a victory lap around my friends who didn't want the Raptors to trade Norman Powell for Gary Trent Jr., he tweeted me um, to prove that he's a pound the rock listener by saying he wanted a power ranking of Cash's victory laps between the bubble heat, the norm trade, and playoff Rondo. Uh, so I'd say the the norm trade is still too fresh. So I'm going to give that number three out of those three. But I am a big fan of what the Raptors did in getting Gary Trent Jr. Uh, playoff Rondo number two, and the bubble heat definitely would be number one in my uh, in the power rankings of my take victory laps because of. Uh, how against it you were, although you were pretty against playoff Rondo too, but no, just just because I genuinely enjoyed that Heat team. I'm a big Jimmy Butler fan, big Spo fan, and really liked the whole grit and uh, kind of combination of that team. So that that would definitely lead my power rankings of take victory laps. So shout out, Tim. Shout out, John. Shout out all of our listeners. We've already got one in the chamber for next week. Reminder, as always, if you're a fan of Pound the Rock, Hit us up on social media. Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a fan, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Back to you. Thanks, Cash. Thanks, everyone, for listening and anyone who has written in. Can't wait to do this again next week. But for now, we're going to call it. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.